You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Do you know how to make a heart with your hands? Right. So I'm going to need that at a couple points in the story. Will you help me when we get there? All right. So here's the story of Sophia and the heart mender. Sophia sat in her room, looking out the window, waiting for night to fall. When the sky gets dark, the shadow monsters come, she thought. I'd better keep the lamp on all night. Go to bed, Sophia, called her mom, and turn off your light. I want my light on, Sophia answered. Enough, called mom. We've been through this light off. So the light stayed off. And all night long, the shadow monsters danced on the walls. They appeared in every corner and filled the whole room. Sophia didn't get much sleep. In the morning, in front of the mirror, Sophia saw a crack in her heart. Can you show me that? Yeah. Get to school, called Dad. You're late. In art class that day, Sophia's head was full of shadow monsters. When she tried to draw them, they wouldn't fit on one piece of paper. Sophia needed more and more pages. Stop, her teacher commanded. You're wasting all that paper, and you're supposed to be drawing spring flowers. Sophia heard a crack. She looked down. There was her heart, lying in her lap in two pieces. Can you show me that? Hmm. No one saw Sophia pick up the halves of her heart and leave. Sophia sat down outside the classroom door and closed her eyes. When she opened them, she saw a dog. What are you going to do with your broken heart? The dog asked her. I don't know, Sophia answered. Can you tell me where to find a heart mender? I know where to find the map, answered the dog. Close your eyes and you will see it. The map is inside you. Sophia closed her eyes and looked around. When she opened her eyes, the dog was gone, but she had a plan. Sophia followed her inner map. She walked all day. When it got dark, Sophia was scared. She closed her eyes to check the map, and when she opened them, the dog was back. But so were the shadow monsters. The shadow monsters visit you because they're lonely, the dog told her. Look straight at them, then tell them they have to leave you alone unless they have something important to say. So Sophia looked straight at the shadow monsters. What do you want, she asked them. The shadow monsters swayed nervously from side to side. Do you have anything to say, she asked. The shadow monsters looked uncertain and maybe a little sad. I have a plan, 
I'm going to see the heart mender. Step aside, Sophia told them firmly. And so they did, revealing a cozy cottage. Sophia opened the door, and there sat the heart mender, surrounded by plants, books, food, and colorful art, all in a wonderful mess. Sophia sunk into a big chair and drank a cup of warm cocoa. The heart mender listened as Sophia talked about the shadow monsters and the lamp, the art class, and her journey. Hmm, tonight is the crescent moon, the heart mender said. Your heart will be mended by moonlight. Sophia and the heart mender went out into the darkness. Sophia placed half of her heart in the heart mender's open hands. They fitted their heart halves together. Can you find a neighbor to do that? They fitted the heart halves together and lifted them up to the sky. A shimmering light bounced off the sliver of moon and touched Sophia's heart. Her heart was whole again. Close your eyes and memorize this place, said the heart mender. Sophia closed her eyes and remembered everything. When she opened her eyes again, her teacher was calling, come back inside and pick up your drawings. Sophia gathered her drawings. She laid them out side by side like pieces of a puzzle. They made one big shadow monster. I like my drawing, Sophia said proudly. It's a shadow monster. The teacher and all the students were amazed that Sophia's drawings made one big picture. They admired her creation. After school, Sophia went home and taped the shadow monster picture to the refrigerator. This is what's been scaring me at night, she told her parents. I felt sad and alone when you didn't believe me or let me leave my light on. From now on, you can leave your light on whenever you want, they said. But that night, Sophia didn't need the light. The sun went down, darkness fell. Sophia slept, bathed in the light of the moon with a full and peaceful heart. Today is Mental Health Sunday. Sophia's story has something to teach us about what we need when we're struggling and how we might respond in ways that are more compassionate and helpful. We need to make and share art, to follow our own path, and to find and to be faithful companions who are not afraid to journey in darkness. We need to remember that the darkness and the moon and the earth are part of us, and we are part of them. Above all, we need to be courageous in telling our stories and to be willing to hear the stories of our companions. May we be safe on our journeys, May we find heartmenders, and may we be them. How do you define who you are? For better or worse, most of us start with our jobs. I am a teacher. Next comes our roles in our homes. I am a devoted cat mother. Next, we think of our communities. I am a geek. I am a Unitarian Universalist. Why not throw in our hobbies? I am a Marvel fan, a Whovian, a singer.
What happens when a diagnosis comes in, particularly a diagnosis of a mental disorder? How do you fold that into your story? My official mental health diagnosis came when I was a young adult. I am clinical depression. Shortly on the heels of that diagnosis came its partner. I am generalized anxiety. It took a while for me to accept these diagnoses, for me to accept the help that I needed for them. It took even longer for me to be open about them with others. After a few years, I could let my friends and family know about them, years more before I admitted, admitted to them at work. I managed to fold them into my identity, though I did it in such a way that they dominated who I was, the story I told myself of myself. Those diagnoses were who I was and wouldn't let me be anything else. As time passed, I got used to them. I learned to fit myself in the small space they left for me. Depression and anxiety slowly became more commonly diagnosed in the general population. More people were open about it, therefore more people became accepting of it. And I grew comfortable with them. Lots of people struggled too. I wasn't alone. About 20 years after that first diagnosis, a new one came my way. One that really threw me and disrupted my story. I am bipolar too. This was a step too far for my sense of identity. This wasn't just common depression or anxiety. This was real. This was, dare I say it, crazy. Yet I recognized myself, my actions, my thoughts in this diagnosis. I just couldn't accept that label. This cognitive dissonance finally made me realize that I had approached all of these diagnoses in the wrong way. I had been allowing these labels to define who I was. I was trying to fit myself into the puzzle piece shape, shape left by them. I gave them all importance and I held myself second to them, apart from them. In church we say, we believe that each human being carries inherent worth and dignity. So many years passed before I realized that applied to myself as well, to every part of myself. Here I was letting these labels, these words, claim my identity. Instead, I had to claim them as pieces of my whole, as simply something I have. I am not a puzzle piece to be squeezed into the background. My story is more, and I get to choose what it says. My OCD started, near as I can tell, after a trip out of town with a friend. I'm a mental health therapist, and the weekend was just what I needed. But on the drive home, I started to feel ill. A visit to the doctor revealed an infection in my bladder and prostate. I went on medication to cure the infection, but the thoughts of why it happened, what I did to cause it, if it could happen again, and would I recognize the signs early enough next time soon overtook me. My mind conjured thoughts of the doctor misdiagnosing my condition, and this was actually a symptom of something much more dire. My mind raced with the thoughts 
of how I could not manage a more serious illness because I'm self-employed. I live on a single income. I can't miss work. How will I pay my bills? I convinced myself to use my best cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, <laughs> and I overrode my worries and fears. Fast forward one month, I came home to my roommate informing me that the nephew she had been caring for for over the past few days was diagnosed with meningitis. She was confident we would not be impacted, but she placated me in thoroughly disinfecting our house. At the same time, completely unrelated, my niece got sick, most likely from her own daycare center. But out of nowhere, the voice of unrelenting worry came back with a vengeance. Did you give your niece meningitis? You weren't careful. You will need to wash your hands better. Should I look up the signs of meningitis online to see if that's what she has? Your brother will never ask you to care for his daughter again. Can I spread meningitis without having symptoms? Do I call my brother to warn him? I know I should not look up information on meningitis on the internet, but that's what I did for hours. I could not tell anyone, and I was so ashamed. Relief came this time when, after days of worry, I saw that she was better. My nervous system did calm down. A few weeks later at work, I invited my 3 p.m. client into the office. At some point in the discussion, my client reveals a recent diagnosis she had received and how she's really struggling with this new medical condition and the reality of it. My mind went blank. What if she passes that disease on to me? Why does she keep rubbing her hands on the couch? I gave her a pen at the start of the session and our hands touched. When did she last wash her hands? I need to throw that pen out after she leaves. All the while, she's being vulnerable about her pain. And I was not listening. I was in my head. I could not focus. Every thought was how my skin was crawling and how I wanted to end that session and run from the room. This time, there was no talking myself out of it. The insidious nature of OCD is that you know it is irrational, and yet you cannot despite all your best efforts and intentions, stop listening to those thoughts. Most people with OCD suffer alone due to the stigma. My OCD is a form known as pure O, which is entirely obsessional, meaning most of my compulsions are racing, intrusive thoughts about how to protect myself, along with some hand washing and never using my bare hand to open any door. I fortunately found relief. I took medications, I went to therapy weekly, and learned to gently ignore that persistent worry. In truth, though, I often feel like I'm only one legitimate illness away from being overrun by all those isolating thoughts again. Some of you may remember a time when doctors didn't tell a patient that they had cancer because of the stigma. And it was only 30 plus years ago that alcoholism was viewed as a disease and not a character flaw. 
And we certainly have watched shame and persecution diminish over the last few decades for gays, lesbian, bisexual, non-binary, and transgender people. It seems that mental health issues are one of the last things in the closet. So it's important what we're doing here today to say out loud that there's no shame in being someone who's struggling with depression, anxiety, PTSD, or any other emotional or mental health issue. Some of you know that my mother died from suicide when I was young. As an adult, I've worked hard to reconcile that trauma. Nonetheless, it left me with a rotten legacy. In times of loss and loneliness, depression too often can rear its demonic head. Depression certainly doesn't define me, but it's something I've learned to pay attention to. We tell those who are emotionally struggling to reach out. That's a lot to ask. When I was in the dark places of grief or despair, often the last thing I had energy for was reaching out. I wonder how we, as people of faith, are called to better support those who are experiencing emotional distress. We know that mental health issues are treatable conditions like any health issue. And like any health issue, we respond best with a friend's concern and companionship. Depression and anxiety are remarkably common so why is it so hard for us to ask a friend, how are you really doing? Probably because we don't quite know what to say, or we think we might offend, or that we're being intrusive. The stigma and shame has a way of silencing us. Sometimes I think what interferes in our talking honestly about emotional issues is the fear that there might be lurking some thoughts of suicide, and it scares us. I used to be frightened of deep depression and any thoughts of suicide, mine or anyone else's. But a wise therapist taught me something invaluable. She said to think of those thoughts as red flags, a sign that one is in pain. If someone wants to crawl in bed, and not get up for days, that's probably signaling some emotional pain. If someone wants to crawl in bed and wishes never to wake up, that singles, signals a deeper level of anguish and requiring more immediate attention. If one starts to wonder how many pills it takes to end a life, that's even more acute. And if someone is lining up those pills on a bathroom counter, they're losing perspective on who loves them and their importance in the world. They just want the pain to stop. I think of it like the four stages of a diagnosis of cancer, with stage one being the least life-threatening and stage four being the most ominous. 
I believe that we too often assume depression or suicidal thoughts are almost always stage four, and we fear that we'll exacerbate the problem by talking about it. But the opposite is true. To bring the emotional suffering out into the open, to share it with somebody, that's what diminishes it. When I was depressed, and I had no thoughts of suicide or escape, but a close friend brought it up. It communicated to me her concern, her recognition of my pain, and it built trust for me to open up more. We know how to check in with a friend who's going through surgery or has an accident. In the same way, we can ask someone who might be depressed, I haven't heard from you in a while. What's going on? Are you feeling down? What's weighing on you? Can I come visit? And if they brush you off, be gently persistent. They might not want to talk, but invite them to join you on a walk, watch TV together, or go for an evening out, even if they are single and you're in a couple. Check in more frequently. We can reach out instead of expecting them to reach out to us. And don't be afraid to ask about suicidal thoughts. Of course, we aren't their therapists, but we can let them know that they're important to us, that we are safe to talk to, and that they aren't alone. In this way, with love and compassion, we can open the doors of that last closet. Renata and Sean and Deborah, thank you. I want to thank them for their beautiful words, for their openness, for their willingness to name and speak their truth to all of us here this morning. They took a great risk, and I hope that you all know uh, that we have received your words as the gift and the invitation that they are. We thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.